Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Becky Field. She's a PhD student at Cambridge University, and her research focuses on the spiritual pedagogy in the texts attributed to the cloud author. Becky, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a big fan. It's exciting to be here. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you very much. I'm going to run straight past that and carry on so as not to get completely embarrassed. Thank you so much for being here. You are obviously here today to speak about the central figure in your research, the cloud author. But before we talk about him, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself studying mystical texts? So I studied medieval English as an undergraduate student. That was an option from my second year to become a medievalist very early on in life. So I did. And I happened to have a class on vernacular theology with the wonderful Mark Williams. So hi, Mark, you have a lot to answer for. Um, I had already been interested in mystics and other traditions, so not Christian ones, I suppose. And then all of a sudden, there I was learning about different kinds of contemplative prayer and how language can or cannot point to the divine in medieval Christianity. And I think it was in that class I first heard words like ineffable and apophatic, and I was probably never quite the same after those two hours. <laughs> and I kind of love seeing my students now going through that same process with their eyes widening as they start trying to conceptualize what a cloud of unknowing might actually be. I see my previous self in that. So yeah, it was all down to one class and here I am. It is really incredible how often the turning point with these things is just one class, particularly when it comes at the undergraduate level. So thank you, Mark, for making sure that we got Becky. I really appreciate that, even if she's going to string you up for it. So was it in this class that you first discovered the cloud author as well? Was it one of the featured texts? It was the same class. We were talking about Julian of Norwich and I think Marjorie Kemp. And then suddenly he mentioned this very mysterious sounding book that was full of paradox and language that subverts itself. And I wrote down, read this in big letters, which I then did. And I was utterly confused by it and absolutely captivated by it. And I went on to write an undergraduate dissertation on it. And now again, like you, almost a decade later, I'm still doing it still working away with this very bewildering, fascinating character, if we can call him that, we don't know anything about him and his works. And yeah, now I'm doing pedagogy specifically. I started out with his language and his theology. That's where I first got interested. And now I write about him as a teacher, which is quite different. Okay, so you're one of those people who write down, I actually need to read this and then goes and does it. What's that like? That was a rare occasion that's not representative of my scholarly practice at all. But I was so taken in by this description, I thought, yeah, this is the one for me. Okay, great. I feel relieved about my own failures to conquer my TV red pile. I really appreciate that. So let's move to talk about the cloud author. Now, based on the fact that we are calling them that and not giving them an actual name should be a pretty solid hint that we don't have a great deal of information about who they are. But can you give us anything about what we know about them and the time period and just what has been surmised? Yes. So we really know very little. I mean, I'm saying we know very little about him. I think he's a him. I'm pretty sure we'll probably never know that. I'm saying that based on the level of learning and education that he seems to have. 
it's almost as if he's been a university man at some point, but I'm going to avoid making any bold sweeping statements about that. Research question in progress. I'll get back to you. <laughs> so he's anonymous, obviously, which is deliberate, I think, for a number of reasons. So yes, it protects him somewhat if he says something controversial, but it's also tied in really closely with the kind of contemplative practice that he's teaching, which is very self-effacing. Humility is a huge part of it. And in his pedagogy as well, the identity of the teacher becomes less and less important. There isn't really a place for the human teacher eventually in this direct apophatic encounter that's happening between the contemplative and the divine. And that's what his whole sort of manual is about. In terms of dates, current scholarly consensus is that the cloud itself was written in the 1390s. So that's based on linguistic analysis of manuscript copies, as well as references to other contemporary works within the text. So he mentions Hilton, for instance, he mentions the scale of perfection. There are six or seven debatable texts attributed to him. Some are more obviously his than others. That's something people are still on the fence about. We think he was probably from the north of England. Beauvale Priory has been floated as a possible institutional affiliation, I suppose. So that's a Carthusian charter house in Nottinghamshire. Personally, I've been hesitant to attach him to a particular order myself. But that said, the Carthusians clearly liked his work. So many of the manuscript copies are of Carthusian provenance or ownership. He's also clearly interested in silence and in written pedagogy, which would also point to a solitary order, maybe, or some other kind of reclusive or enclosed lifestyle. He's writing to a disciple or disciples, plural. The cloud itself is written for a young disciple of 24 years. So essentially, he's a spiritual director or a sort of contemplative expert. And that's about all we know. So you mentioned that one of the potential perks of being anonymous is that he has some protection in case he says anything controversial. Does he say anything controversial in these works? It's not too bad. It's not anything that's going to get you burnt. It's kind of slight details. He says something, I think it's chapter 42. He says something about being in a contemplative state constantly and how that might affect the other day-to-day -day duties that you have to do as a religious person. It's little things like that that could be a bit dodgy. And so when his later translators and commentators are, well, translating the work, it gets translated into Latin in the 15th century. That's the sort of thing that they change or take issue with in their glosses. So it was clearly not entirely orthodox, but it's not terrible. It's not really, really dangerous. So I think he's just being careful. Well, I mean, being careful is always important, particularly, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, if you are a religious thinker in the 14th century. Just a good time to be careful with what you say. Exactly. I think he's wise. So with us not knowing his name, he has been dubbed the Cloud Author after The Cloud of Unknowing, one of the texts that has been attributed to him. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is going on with this group of attributed texts? So The Cloud of Unknowing is his main work. It's his longest work. It's the one that we're attaching to him most confidently. And he also writes The Book of Privy Counselling, which is sort of a slightly shorter follow-up to the cloud itself, and it covers a lot of the same themes. And he then has some shorter treatises. So there's Dionys Hid Divinity, which is a translation of Pseudo Dionysius, mystical theology. 
there's the pistol of prayer, the pistol of discretion of stirrings, and then there's the treatise of discretion of spirits, which is less certain, it sounds a lot less like him, and then there's Benjamin Minor, or his kind of treatise about Benjamin Minor, which also almost could be anyone, but we're attributing it to him for now. So why are all these texts attributed to the same anonymous author, rather than maybe separate anonymous authors? So it's a lot to do with manuscript survival. There's a British Library manuscript in which all of them are together. And it's also a lot to do with style. He has a very, very distinctive style and way of using language and refrains almost that reoccur across the texts. And so some of them are really quite obviously him, but others, he sort of drifts off on tangents and other themes. So it's less clear. So on the topic of similarities, let's get into these texts now. Let's start with The Cloud of Unknowing. What is this text about? What is it like? Tell me all about it. What kind of work is this? Okay, so essentially it's a contemplative manual, really. He's teaching a student or whoever is reading it. He's very fussy about who's going to be reading it. He has a wonderful prologue where he reels off all the types of people who should not be reading it fleshly janglers, raukers and ruiners, all manner of pinchers, whoever you think those might be. If you're one of them, don't touch it. Wait, wait, hold on. Do you know what a fleshly jangler is? What is that supposed to be? No idea. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. (laughs) I worry sometimes that it's me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start calling people fleshly janglers. That's my new favorite insult. It's my new favorite thing. That is amazing. I'm so happy. (laughs) Please continue. So yeah, if you're one of those, don't read it. And he says, if you happen to just pick this up, or if you're a messenger delivering this to someone, or if you're anybody else, just don't read it. Don't turn another page. Please don't. So you can imagine the guilt I feel as a PhD student having to do this on a regular basis. But anyway, so it's designed for a very advanced or... Elite might be the right word. Type of contemplative. That doesn't mean someone who's necessarily very learned. It's just someone who's particularly well suited to this type of work. So the main theme of it, the one that we kind of can't escape all the way through, is that language and metaphor and images, all these things that we ordinarily use to understand the world, just cannot apply to this type of contemplation. And that's the theme that keeps coming up all the way through the cloud. And, you know, that's not necessarily an uncommon standpoint in mystical texts, but the way that the cloud author demonstrates it is just so wonderful. In many ways, he makes it quite clear and straightforward. And yet, if you spend more than a few seconds thinking about what he's just said, it's so deeply paradoxical. And it's just this ongoing pattern that happens all the way through. There's an example that I always end up coming back to that sort of demonstrates how he does this. And it's when he tries to describe the image of the cloud itself. We can't even really call it an image. So it's this cloud of unknowing or cloud of forgetting with which you are supposed to cover everything you know, everything that you've ever come across, all creative things. It all has to go under this cloud. And the way he describes this cloud really sets out for his reader the way that he approaches language, the way that he wants you to approach language in order to understand the way that he writes. Can I read you the passage? Yes, please. That'd be fantastic. Okay, so he says, And waner not, for I clep it a darkness or a cloud, that it be any cloud congealed of the humours that flyen in the air, nay yet any darkness such as is in thine house on nights when thy candle is out. 
for such a darkness and such a cloud mayest thou imagine with curiosity of wit for to bear before thine eyes in the lightest day of summer let be such falsehood i mean not thus so he tells you everything it's not and he asks you to imagine all these very concrete familiar almost everyday things and then takes them all away as soon as he's introduced them and then you're left to imagine what nothing negativity absence it's absolute genius i think and part of the way he teaches through this text and in privy counseling as well to an extent is to throw you or his imagined pupil into a state of total confusion and frustration and you realize that your intellect and your rational mind won't work here at which point he'll turn around and say there you go you've got it that's it and i love that kind of slightly smug revelation he's almost quite pleased with himself he likes to sort of mess around with his reader a bit or at least that's always been my interpretation but the focus of the whole text is just preparing the student for their own contemplative practice through these strange exercises it's not a reflection on or a documentation of any of the author's own mystical or visionary experiences he doesn't go in for that at all it's all about introducing the student to the practice making sure they're the right kind of person giving them suitable counsel some techniques to try and then stepping away it's very much an instruction manual but it's an instruction manual designed to make you confused and frustrated so that you eventually just say i don't understand i don't know what's going on just so that he can say good <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then you're supposed to reach a place of acceptance that's very calm and very meditative and it's kind of a receptive unknowing but first you have to go through this necessary frustration of the intellect which i think is just brilliant this is yet another sign that i was never meant to be a medieval contemplative i have never been in a situation where i've been confused and not understood what's going on and it's led to any sort of calm i have no idea how this would have worked and that in itself is confusing and frustrating. I will never reach enlightenment. Well, maybe if you keep persevering, you reread. He suggests that you reread and you come back and you re-enter and eventually, apparently, you get there. This is incredible. So you take this cloud. You don't know what it looks like. It's nothing you can visualize. It's not like a cloud, but it's a cloud. Okay, now take the cloud and spread it over things. How do you spread a cloud? It doesn't make any sense. I kind of hate it. My students say that too. They're like, why? Why are you making me do this? It's hard to say because it's difficult to imagine whether it's a barrier because he often says a cloud betwixt you and your God. So it's a barrier between you. It's also a meeting place where God can kind of come in and find you there. So it's impossible to imagine what this is. It has to go over everything and cover everything. But then... You can also enter it. God can enter it. It's very obscure. I guess that's the point, isn't it? <laughs> so it's about contemplation, about humility, the idea of becoming nothing. It doesn't explain itself to you. So there's a whole lot of nothing happening here. Maybe that explains why it's such a short book. You'd be surprised. He has quite a lot to say about nothing. He has a lot of words for someone who doesn't think language can do any justice to the divine. He has a lot to say. But he, of course, does not fall into the category of people who talk a lot without saying anything. Instead, he's talking a lot about nothing, specifically as a topic. That's exactly it. And he chooses his words 
very, very carefully in order to do that, I think. He's aware of the irony, he's aware of the paradox, and he kind of uses it to his advantage. I think he's a very clever man, but I'm biased, I would say that. They can be disturbingly clever at times. What about these other works, though? Do they cover similar themes, or is there similar terminology? What made people think, oh yes, these ones are definitely by the same person that wrote The Cloud of Unknowing? What connections are drawn between them? I ask myself that all the time, to be honest, because a lot of the shorter treatises, they don't delve into this kind of apophatic world at all. And I think it's because they're designed for maybe a slightly different audience. So there's the Pistle of Discretion of Stirrings, for instance, is a short treatise, it's a letter, or it's arranged as a letter, whether that's rhetorical or not is a whole other question. And it's addressed to somebody who would like to enter into this kind of contemplative life, but they're not ready. And so it's a whole treatise on how they need to stop copying people who look very holy, who might fast excessively or spend too much time alone or look like they're living a life of silence, but they're not. And he kind of warns against this. And it's all about finding your disposition is the word that he uses and making sure you've got the right one for this kind of work. And so that for me is a very obvious link between that shorter text and the cloud because disposition is something that comes up quite often and it's something that you have to be very sure that you have that your teacher has to be very sure that you have and that your god has to be very sure that you have so a lot of these shorter texts kind of play on certain ideas that are not necessarily central to the cloud itself but they're all in there so there are kind of these smaller links even though they might be written to different people so none of these provide a particular religious role or a particular kind of religious person that these are meant for. Like, they're not necessarily written for nuns or monks or anchorites like we see with some other texts, but instead are just directed at those who may want this more contemplative, spiritual, mystical life. Exactly. And you almost get the sense that it could be anyone, as long as they have this particular disposition, whatever that is. And he speaks in the cloud about his recipient as someone who was living in the sort of communal life with all his friends. It's the common degree of living with all your friends. He says something like that. And whether that's in a monastery, we don't know. We kind of assume that might be the case. But he's then talking about how this disciple is going to progress to the solitary form of living, because that's the next stage. And he says that this disciple is ready for it, and he's been called by God to progress to this type of living. So it seems to be someone who has a desire to go out from the world, whether they're already in a monastic institution or not, to a more solitary form of living. But that's never prescribed as being absolutely essential. He doesn't give very much information about what kind of a person they should be, just that they have the desire for God and they've been chosen by God. Okay, but with that in mind, let's get into the pedagogy side of things. That is something that you are focusing on now. Could you give us a quick definition of pedagogy? And then is there something with regards to these texts that seems to imply that the reader should have some previous training or some education in these areas? Or can you approach this as a complete novice? I don't think you do. So pedagogy, in the way that I'm looking at it before I go off on this tangent, will be just kind of teaching and learning, really, how he's teaching, the types of learning practices that he's interested in, and the exercises that a student might do. 
techniques for teaching, traditional teaching models, that kind of thing, I'm really interested in. I don't think he expects his student to come with any particular kind of learning. He might even see that as a hindrance because he's very worried about the kind of intellect and the rational mind that might come with, say, scholastic learning. And I think he's worried about how that might interfere with the process. He talks a lot about the curiosity of the clergy and cunning clerks and people like this who are clearly very learned and they've tried to approach his work in the wrong way and they couldn't understand it. And he's had complaints that his work is so hard and so high because no one had a clue what he was going on about. But he says, actually, if you approach this in the correct way, so by subverting your cognitive faculties and entering into this state of unknowing, whatever that is, he says, if you do that, it's actually plainly proper, so clearly appropriate, to the lewdest cow, which is just wonderful. So there's a sense in which it can be really, really simple if you have the right spiritual perspective. But school learning or university learning might not necessarily bring you that. So it's certainly not necessary. I think he's a very learned man himself. But as is often the case with these texts, he doesn't cite authorities or anything like that. He doesn't talk about his own educational background. So I don't think it is necessary. I mean, you see these generators on the internet for coming up with erudite insults, and they're always based on Shakespeare. And I have to say, I want these ones. These are phenomenal. They're brilliant, aren't they? I would like an entire collection of them, please. (laughs) He has so many. There's a prologue and an epilogue that are absolutely full of this. I would recommend checking it out. That is fantastic. I look forward to seeing more of them in the future. They are just great. Now, you've already shared one piece of the text with us, and obviously multiple more allusions and quotes, but I'm wondering, when you think of the Cloud author, what aspects of his writings or moments in the sources, what comes to you first when you think about his writing? Oh, I think I have two different things. Do I have time to give you two different things? Absolutely. Okay, so one of them is playing a bit on what I'd already talked about, this sort of almost comic approach to paradox that I really love. And there are certain lines that always come to me when I'm thinking about this. There's a section in chapter 68 of The Cloud that I always come back to. He gives an extremely disorientating explanation of spatial metaphors. So he's saying that in contemplation, the disciple should be neither within nor without, nor above, nor behind or below himself, this whole list. It's another example of these ordinary metaphors just not working. And then the author ventriloquizes the student getting frustrated with this in the way that his reader also might. And he has the student exclaim, well, where then shall I be? Nowhere by thy tail. And the author figure or the teacher figure then responds, now truly thou sayest well. For there would I have thee, for why nowhere bodily is everywhere ghostly. (laughs) And so he makes clear that this student has actually found the solution himself, and he needs to abandon all these ordinary metaphors to try and locate God. He needs to forget the body. Nowhere is exactly where he should be. I just love this comic dynamic where he's always putting the student on the spot, and then he gives them a voice. So as the reader, you see this voice coming through and it's sort of a channel for your own frustration, which 
is just so clever, I think. And then the other one, which is less silly, more mystical, is the cloud author's recommendation of monosyllabic prayer words. So this is a section in which he gives you a recommendation of how to actually do this practice. And that's quite rare in the text. He doesn't talk a lot about what it looks like. But there's one section where he says, you might go and try this. And it's probably the most frequently quoted part of the cloud. So it's quite a predictable thing for me to say that I particularly enjoy, maybe, but it's wonderful. And he says you can pick any word that you like for your own personal prayer word, as long as it's one syllable. And you use it to induce a kind of meditative state. So he says you might use the word God, or you might use the word love. And he's very clear that this chosen word is not spoken and it's not thought, it's meant, Middle English meaning, it's meant. So you don't say it out loud, you don't think it, it's a process of sort of non-intellectualizing silent intention is the only way that I've found to describe it so far. And when he says any word of one syllable, he really does mean any word. And he proves this point by saying you can even use the word sin because you should be so detached from the meanings and the connotations of that word. It's just a sort of vehicle for a process. So it doesn't matter at all if you're sitting there saying sin, sin, sin. That's fine. And he also recognises that your thoughts might come in and intrude and ask you to unpack that word and think about why you're saying that word in particular or what it means. They might also ask you what you did earlier in the day or pop up with an image of somewhere you once used to live. But you just keep repeating this word over and over like a mantra and it will eventually silence everything else. And that's this one really quite practical piece of advice that he gives. And that always sticks with me. I really love that. Okay, so I need anyone out there listening who is on Twitter. What did your intrusive thoughts put in your head when Becky said that you just need a single syllable word? Please tweet it at me at myfavemystic. Tell me. What is the word that came to your brain for I need a one syllable word to focus on? Because mine was boing, which I'm not even sure is only one syllable and I don't think would work. Why not? Try it. It might work. It should work. <laughs> but it can't work because how does one boing? I mean, I could say it, but you're not supposed to say it. I can think it, but I'm not supposed to think it. I have to mean it, but how do you mean boing? What does that even mean? <laughs> You're not supposed to worry about what it means. It's a non-sonic sound that you use. <laughs> you need to unsonify it and mean it. It'll work like a dream. Honestly, though, no, that was great. Everyone, please do tweet at me your one-syllable words that your brain made you think of, because that has just made my day. Now, all of this humility and becoming nothing, being in no place with no thoughts and no self, what is the end goal? Is this supposed to be something that is just repeated throughout your life and you get better at it? Is it, or is there some sort of precipice? Is there some sort of final moment that you are looking for what is the goal with this process as described in these texts that is a very good question <laughs> i suppose the end goal would be something like wanting or union middle english wanting but we don't really know what that would look like what that involves 
he doesn't offer any kind of personal experience of what that might involve, which is deliberate, I think, because he's saying that everyone's version of this is going to be very individual and completely different to them. So hearing about anyone else's experience isn't actually very useful in this. So we don't know what his might look like. We don't know what ours might look like, but it's some kind of interaction or communion with the divine in a cloud, maybe. We don't really know, but it's certainly a continual process. It's not like you go through and you do all these tasks and then you get there and that's it. In fact, he asks you to revisit, come back to the work, start from the beginning, dip in and out. It's very much a continual project. And he doesn't really like ideas of ascension or gradation or anything like that. It's just once you're there, it's something you can do and you just keep returning to it. And it's a lifetime's work, really. Does it get you closer to God? Does it give you any kind of increased understanding? Or is it just about achieving that contemplative state? It does get you closer to God and it gets you in this state of ineffable love, I suppose, that you kind of always want to be in. But it's something that you're always going to return to and always go back and restart. It's part of this humility again that you're always sort of a beginner and you're cultivating a certain type of relationship that he's not going to tell us an awful lot about. So we don't hear him describe his own experiences of this process, but does it seem like it's structured around his own experience? Do we get the sense that this is something he actually did engage with himself? So there's an implication that this is something that he does, but he never tells you what his own thing looks like. He has a sort of model for teaching that is based on having the right disposition and then learning from a teacher and then trying it yourself. And these steps are disposition, teaching and proof. Proof is the actual experience of it. And he says that he has learned from a teacher who was sure of their own disposition and they learned from other teachers. He learned from them. And then he practiced it himself by the proof. And he tells you to do the same. He says, you can learn from me, but then you need to go away and do your own proof. So there's a sort of set process here. And the implication is that he's definitely been through it, but he's not going to tell you anything about his own proof because he doesn't think that that will be useful for you. And it really does make this whole process cyclical in a way that the cloud author got to the point where he had learned enough from someone who taught him and now he can teach you. And then once you reach that same point, you can teach others. And it's just an ongoing process. Mm, absolutely. And there's a sense that there are generations back of contemplatives who've been doing this work, but it's quite sort of secret what the actual work might be. And it is quite unique, isn't it, really? Because if you think about other mystics, say Rollo or Julian or, or someone, it's very much about, here's what happened to me, here's what it looked like. There's none of that. There's really none of that. And I find that fascinating. I'm always intrigued by anonymous texts because I feel like one of the ways that these texts get preserved and carry on from their period to modern day is because of the importance placed on the author, in a way. So if a mystical text is written by someone who is deemed to be a saint and has a cult go around them, it's more likely that we will end up having some of their work preserved. But in this case, that it's an anonymous author, we don't know anything about them, but we still have the texts. That's really intriguing. Was there an in-between period where these were attributed to another prominent name, and potentially that helped them carry forward? So slightly later readers who were 
almost all Carthusian monks really wanted to attribute it to someone. So James Greenhalgh, I think it is, writes that it was by Walter Hilton. So I think it went through the book production process with a name attached to it sometimes, other times not. I have a feeling people also want to attribute it to Rollo at some point as well. There's a real sense that it must belong to someone because it's so potent or interesting that it must belong to someone. It's only later in modern scholarship almost that people stop trying to attach an identity to it. Even in the 1930s, there's still a huge debate going on. Was this Walter Hilton or was it not? So it's only more recently that people have kind of let that go. Do you think that accepting the anonymity of the author has affected scholarship? Has it changed the way that the text is viewed and read? Mm, I think so, because I think it allows you to see the anonymity as a part of the process. So as a part of the kind of theology that he's teaching, as a part of the way that he teaches, that his identity, his authority is not important in the same way as it might be for other mystics or other mystical texts. So I think there has been perhaps more of a focus on that. But equally, I really, really understand the desire to know who this guy was. And it preoccupies me a lot of the time. And it probably always will. Again, it's so frustrating that we don't know things. And I feel like this is part of his point. We don't like not knowing things. Exactly. (laughs) So he just made sure that we had that frustration, not only through the whole of the text, but for all of time when it comes to knowing who he is. Because why do we need to know? Why do we need to know who he is if the point is that we shouldn't need to know anything? Exactly. We need to start suspending our rational minds and just not caring about it. Exactly. Amazing. Okay, we are coming to the end of the podcast. So now we just have the one final question, which is, Becky, why is the cloud author your favorite mystic? Oh, wow. If you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I probably would have said his absolutely mind-blowing command of paradox, right? So the way he makes you think or not think about divine and human relations, the way he uses language so carefully to try and teach that experience whilst also resisting language with every fibre of his being, that's wonderful. But after my PhD project, I've actually, and this is quite sentimental really, (laughs) I've actually come to develop a real kind of fondness for his teaching voice or his teaching persona. And that persona might be purely rhetorical and no reflection whatsoever of what he was like as a person, as a teacher, but it's just so compelling. And sometimes he's really, really harsh. He's quite brutal. Other times he's hilarious and he's witty and he's sneaky. Other times he's really humble and tells the student that they're brilliant and that they're bound to surpass him in all things. And he's always dynamic. He's always surprising. And although I'm really, really biased, I do think he has found a perfect and a really fine-tuned way of teaching this particular version of contemplative practice. And I think that's fantastic. So that's why. And of course, he has just absolutely the best burns for anyone who's reading his works that shouldn't be. That too. That too. That's always my main selling point when I'm talking to anyone who's not a medievalist. And like, guess what he called this person, though? And they remember it forever. Fantastic. Just amazing. 
Becky, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about The Cloud Author. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was fantastic to have you. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic, and don't forget to tweet your one-syllable meditation words at me. But most importantly, join me next time when I speak to Sandra Flubergs about Lutgardis. Thank you.